0: Hello, this is David Shirley from Irish Funds. We continue our look back at the Irish Funds UK Symposium from the 11th of November with this episode, which is a panel discussion entitled ESG, What Do Investors Want? The moderator you will hear is Paul Stillabower from RBC Investor and Treasury Services. We have three panellists, Andrew Alabaster from BlackRock, Tenny Ekundari from FAIR and Sonali Siriwardena from Morgan Stanley. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll have more content shortly from this year's UK Symposium. Thanks for having us today. We've got the, um, the panel on ESG, uh, what do investors want. I did expect this to be a full house because I assumed everyone wanted to know if other investors wanted something different than making loads of money and feeling good about themselves. Um, but uh, we'll try and answer some of the questions here. The um, ESG um, is, you know, probably the most talked about uh, topic on, on the planet today, um, especially given COP26, um, it's, it's, you know, gathering pace uh, against a very difficult economic backdrop. We've got the pandemic, we've got a supply chain crisis, um, potentially we're moving into the highest sustainable inflation uh, period in 50 years. So. Um, It it is something that has created a minefield for investors and hopefully um, with this amazing panel um, We'll be able to answer some questions that you have today. So joining me today. We've got on the far left um, Andrew Alabaster Um, Andrew represents the money market fund industry, which is pretty important to Ireland and And the impact of ESG on that um, that segment of the industry given his role as director of cash management um, for BlackRock which is the largest asset manager in the world um, Tenny uh, Ekandari is the Head of Investor Outreach at the FAIR Initiative and in that role, Tenny works with a broad ESG focused global investor network of asset managers and asset owners on real economy analysis analysis and impact of ESG investing. And then uh, Sonali Siri Wardena has responsibility for Morgan Stanley Investment Management's sustainability policies and incorporating ESG principles into the framework for both Morgan Stanley and um, its investment clients. So a very uh, very established panel. Um, So just to kick things off, Tenny, um, my first question will be to you. Um, Obviously, ESG is a huge topic and it's growing in relevance Um, every day. You just returned from COP26. Um, At FAIR, you're constantly interacting with investors on the specific topic how would you say their thinking is evolving, and are there any trends that are emerging?
1: All right, thank you. Um, Yes, as you said, I have just come back from COP, and it's amazing to see how much more um, attention and focus is actually being paid to investors as having a role and a, a part to play when it comes to addressing some of the ESG risks that we're facing, Um, and so having it be that there's so much more talk around, okay, what are investors actually doing when it comes to, say, how they're using their funds, and what it is that they're investing in, and how they're helping to encourage transitions um, across various industries. So I would say that certainly things are evolving really rapidly, Um, FAIR is uh, just over five years old, and in that time, we have seen our network grow to over $45 trillion of um, assets supporting us, and that's really because investors are very quickly recognising that actually ESG is is not something that is separate to the day-to-day job and the day-to-day role, but fundamental to it. So when they are thinking about financial risks, ESG is a material financial risk as well. And so we're really seeing the... um, awareness the information the knowledge sharing the education really starting to come through on on that side Um, and certainly i would say that through that period we've also seen that the way investors are approaching it is evolving as well so whereas before i think there was much it was much more high level in terms of okay so at a sector level what do i need to be thinking about when it comes to um, esg concerns but now it's really getting into the weeds a lot more we're finding that asset managers and asset owners want to understand more about what their uh, where the money is being put to work and, uh, and wanting to engage more with companies specifically to try and understand a little bit more around um, how it is that they are financing a, a transition and how it is that they can b- make sure that they are creating a, a world where their clients actually would, would want money, would be able to um, spend their money and enjoy um, the, the returns that they're actually making. So I'd say that when it comes to the um, sustainability um, side of things and the ESG side of things. There certainly has been a lot of evolution both in terms of the data and then also in terms of the uh, investors wanting to each other having impact and, and um, supporting a lot more of the transition that needs to be made.
0: Okay, great. And just picking up on one thing you said. So it, it's, I mean, I think it's great for large fund managers, large, large investors that have access to corporates. How do the smaller managers get?
1: That's somewhere? a great question. And I think that it's, It is very much about understanding that there is strength in numbers, and so that's one of the things that we find, not just with with our network, but other networks out there as well, that you have smaller investors who um, have a lot more, uh, who potentially have a a lot more resource to actually, um, or time to dedicate to actually trying to understand their role within this, but you also have some who say that because of the the many, many hats they need to wear, that they need help in in terms of trying to actually understand this. And so therefore, that's where knowledge sharing comes in. And there's no point, I I keep saying it to to our members as well, that there's no point in trying to reinvent the wheel. Use the information that is out there, use the networks that exist, tap into them, and make sure that you're taking that um, on board when it comes to the the work that you're actually doing as well. So I think that the smaller um, investors, the smaller asset owners, smaller smaller asset managers certainly have a role to play. Um, It's about making sure that they are finding those right connections in order to do so.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. It's a great start for us. Um, So, Sonali, um, given uh, Tenny's answer, is there anything you'd like to add to that from your your perspective?
2: Thank you, Paul, and thank you to Irish Funds for the opportunity to speak today. Um, Look, what we see on the ground uh, within Morgan Stanley Asset Management is a a remarkable difference in terms of the volume of questions that we get on ESG. I ran some stats just last evening. So, our DDQs, uh, the percentage increase on ESG questions, 410% over two years. Our RFPs, 153%. And so it's no longer about are you a signatory to the PRI, but it's far more detailed, far more granular in terms of you know, what's your ESG philosophy on investment? Um, how do you approach training and expertise? Do you have dedicated resource on ESG? You know, what kind of reporting do you provide? And more specifically, do you report on SDGs? Um, What's your philosophy in terms of the approaches you use to incorporate ESG in in terms of ESG integration? Is it exclusions? Is it thematics? Uh, Is it having sustainable objectives? You know, the whole SFDR discussion. So it's no longer about just what you do, but certainly about how you hope to go about it, and not just at the front end, throughout the life cycle of your product.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And um, Andrew, just we'll pivot a bit toward the, the money market um, segment. In, in light of the view that we've just heard from from Tenney and Sonali, um, how do you see ESG impacting the money market fund industry? Maybe with a little emphasis on Ireland, and how are you seeing investors assessing money market portfolios and, and measuring your ability to report to them on on their requirements? Sure. Thanks, Paul. And well, there isn't really a
3: money market fund industry in Europe without Ireland, so it's, it's pretty much ubiquitous there. But uh, echoing a little bit of what Tenny and Sonali have both said there for, for money markets, um, it's not the immediate place that you might think of when you're thinking about ESG, but what we've seen over the last three or four years, really a microcosm of what you've just both been saying, in that um, four or five years ago, you know, if we did get a DDQ for a money market uh, portfolio or money market fund, It really would have, maybe UNPRI at the bottom of a DDQ would have been about it. Now we're seeing um, ESG questions in our cash and money market portfolios as we are across the the board at BlackRock, um, pretty much echoing every every client conversation. Uh, First and foremost though, clients want, when I'm talking about money market investment, want products or strategies that work for money market funds or money market products first and foremost. So that's a really important piece. And then the ESG is a layer, and a very, an increasingly important layer on top of that. But what uh, a lot of uh, investors struggle with, and a lot of the dialogues that we have, is really expanding on how uh, we implement uh, ESG within, at a portfolio level, and how that helps them meet their own uh, sustainability goals. It's not, a, it's not an easy uh, thing, not an easy square to circle. And five years ago, the concept of uh, ESG and money market products, um, probably been laughed out of this room, to be perfectly honest. But the things that we've seen a sea change in, is as, as Tenny was saying, uh, ESG is financial risk. Um, and you know, in money markets, we're looking at an industry, or, or an issuance base rather, which is predominantly financial institutions. And in terms of ESG impacting very short term loan books, very short term, uh, Credit quality—it's not likely to happen in in, the in the tenure that we're talking about in money market investments, incredibly short-term investment. But their long-term relationships within long-term, within short-term investments, and that uh, the banks which we fund on behalf of, as agent really, uh, on behalf of our investors—they are critical to the. Uh, the energy transition to, sense to sustainability transition, uh, and if we can engage with them and increase uh, the way in which that they they issue in in green space and uh, and, and the way in which we can provide product that's helping that in our view helping that long term uh, sustainability goal. So you know that's a uh, a fundamental way in which we're seeing a, a sea change. Five years ago, as I've said, the concept of green commercial paper, fun, you know. Uh, commercial paper that is specifically being used by banks to fund green and sustainable products didn't exist. It does now, Uh, but this is an evolving picture and it's still nascent, and I think a lot of investors uh, and a lot of asset managers are really struggling with, or really getting to grips with, perhaps better put, with how how it is evolving. Uh, We see big gaps in data. Um, We've long seen the importance of data and indeed ESG being part of our credit scorecard, the way in which we assess uh, creditworthiness of of counterparties. Um, But there isn't a universal or a well-recognised data set, and uh, we've had to uh, develop our own proprietary modelling in in order to do that. That's not an easy thing to do, Um, but that data set uh, more broadly is something that's nascent and evolving. It is getting better, um, but it's still very early days, and I think... Uh, a lot of investors are looking for us to provide evidence and support and reporting on how we're doing what we uh, what we're doing albeit the fact that it's very very early stages
0: okay brilliant and Solly is that something you're seeing and I know we, we talked about this um, last week the whole the kind of the reporting the link to the quality of data the lack of data the lack of standard how, how do we sort of work our way through the morass here
2: it's a challenge, it's, it's, uh, in short, it, it is really the answer. I mean, on the data point, uh, it's, it's it's been quite astounding at um, kind of the tsunami of the regulation that's coming our way, but the fact that the data is just not mature enough for certainly asset owners like ourselves to be able to report. Um, I may cite three examples in terms of headwinds particularly on data. Firstly, the regulation in itself, and perhaps there are some regulators in the room here, but you know, CSRD in terms of the corporate, mandatory corporate disclosures of non-financial information is great, but it's not here yet. So it's really carved before the horse in terms of requiring asset owners to report. Um, and number two, even if it were to come about, say 2023, it's just such a small set of companies, you know, over 500 employees domiciled in Europe, You know, if you look at the portfolios that we have, it straddles a far larger segment of of companies and issuers. Um, And secondly, in terms of data availability and accuracy, uh, you know, some of these uh, data sets across SFDR, across taxonomy, companies themselves don't know the answers, right? And also the reality is the regulation, for better or for worse currently, is hugely equity-centric. So for those of us who have you know, multi-asset portfolios, fixed income, private assets, it's, it's well-nigh impossible to get the data with the best of intentions. Uh, and certainly, the data, you know, the vendor solutions out there are far behind. The third thing I would say is you know, coming on to data vendors. So much like most people in the room, I'm sure, uh, we are in the thick of assessing what kind of data solution uh, we, can, we can arrive at uh, for SFDR, the the PAIs, and also the taxonomy alignment. The data vendors out there, in the first instance, we are yet to find, so within Morgan Stanley, we've assessed up to six different vendors, shall not mention names, of course. None have an end-to-end data solution that's available currently, Mm. right? Uh, And at best, it would be Q1, Q2 next year. Mm. Number two, we see a huge disparity in terms of the the way they approach alignment. You know, if you take the MSCI world, you know it's between three to thirty percent in terms of alignment between these data vendors, and it's almost night and day. Take one one just one company to make it real, Tesla. You know, one provider assigned it a zero percent taxonomy alignment score, whereas another assigned it ninety nine point nine percent alignment. Um, And there's a reason for that, because while there's consensus that Tesla as an organization is contributing in terms of economic activity to produce electric vehicles, there is disagreement in terms of the do no significant harm principle, i.e., through the the, the, the use of batteries, wastage, the the energy consumed to make these batteries, that they don't necessarily align with the four remaining environmental objectives of the taxonomy. So hence your final alignment score is night and day. So that really presents a huge challenge. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and Tenny, you've got some, some views on data and reporting and, mm. and again, representing a, really a wide swathe of the, the investment and community.
1: I can agree more when it comes to the, the issues when it comes to data um, and, to, and to the regulatory side of things as well. I think that there's, um, there is the understanding that we we do need better quality data, and that is something that will, I, I have to be optimistic, and really that it will shake out in over the next few months, years, et cetera, as we are able to refine the, the reporting that we get a bit more, as we're able to um, be more granular in terms of how we're measuring some of these things, because as Sonali said, it's, for a lot of companies, it's just they're not measuring it. They, they don't have the regulatory requirements as yet to measure it, and so therefore, it's the couple of those. So things on the data side of things, yes, it certainly I expect that it will improve because investors as well are crying out for more clarity around it. And it comes back to that to transparency as well. So if it is that we want to be able to have the, uh, the financial services industry better measure and understand their impact, then there needs to be more transparency from data vendors in terms of how it is that they are supporting this industry in, in terms of being able to do that and so we the, the same way that we call for transparency in the companies that fair that we that we're assessing and that we're that we're looking at examining is the same way that we feel that that transparency does it doesn't stop it does need to keep on evolving and we do need to make sure that we are getting that come through um come through across the board and yes there there is the issue in terms of the lack of alignment but i do think that it's one of those almost don't let, the perfect be the enemy of good so let's at least start let's at least start getting this innovation together and and the more that we're able to do this and the more time passes the more we will get to where we need to be but we need to start somewhere
0: yeah and I think you know it's I mean the one undeniable thing is at least everyone's putting attention to this and you know there's where there's a will there's a way so you know Mm -hmm. hopefully we'll get there sooner than later um, Sonali, I just want to pivot to the sort of the central bank of Ireland last week. They released their Dear CEO letter um, a few months after the, the PRA um, to, to regulated financial services firms um, in relation to climate, particularly, but also the broader ESG. And the expectation is that firms will have um, an appropriate governance framework and clear reporting disclo- disclosures to both consumers and investors. And again, we're seeing similar from regulators everywhere. Can you? Um, Give us some advice on how this can be implemented in light of um, Like we talked about the lack of common standards and especially for you know The independent directors and their risk profiles like how, how do you sort of see that kind of that letter?
2: Sure, um, I would say advice would be a <laughs> would be a high bar. Uh, all I can do really is to share. Learn, this isn't
0: an advice. <laughs> this is not advice. <laughs> uh,
2: not least because it's an evolution. I don't think anyone really has figured this out. Uh, and you know, collectively, we've got to mature and evolve as an industry, as a sector. So, um, just just a level set in terms of the DSCO letter last week, last Wednesday. Um, in fact. Um, intentionally I mean it's focused on climate risk but essentially the CBI acknowledging that climate risk is of strategic importance and that uh, financial services you know regulated um, firms have a critical role to play in that and so it's cited you know five key areas where they would expect uh, there would be supervisory expectation in terms of firms being um, aware and addressing these points across the board now, interestingly, there is no requirement to respond to the letter, and it says that it's not prescriptive nor binding. But suffice to say, all of us have, have stood up and taken notice, <laughs> not least because, you know, in CP86, it's already embedded within the rules that, you know, mancos really need to be part of the product design and, and be able to assess across the board how sustainability impacts uh, their, their product suite. So, um, I mean, uh, there's a five thematic um, points they've called out really, firstly governance, secondly on risk frameworks, um, thirdly scenario analysis, fourthly on uh, the business models, so strategy and business model risk, and fifthly on disclosures. So if you just if we take maybe one um, at a time, just to share some thoughts of our initial thinking on these points. So if you look at governance, the whole idea is that boards take ownership for setting strategy. And, and from our perspective you know, the, the steps we've taken thus far and certainly as I mentioned it's an evolution um, and we will continue to enhance but making our boards part of the conversation, right? So to that end we have made ESG a standing agenda item for our board meetings, right? At times it might be a 10 minute update, others you know, it's a 50 page or 50 slide you know, deck that we would present to them but to know that it is of critical importance for them to be aware, not least because the space is changing at such a, you know, with with such pace. And so they need to be aware as to how the organisation, how the funds they manage and for which they have fiduciary obligations uh, are approaching it. So uh, secondly, in terms of the risk framework at large, So the whole idea, at least, you know, that CBI, the way they've articulated it is that, you know, for example, all three lines of defence are part of the conversation. So to that end, you know, we already have risk dashboards that we run for all our products, um, and that that get presented to the board as part of MI, and so the control function, so if you think of the three lines of defence, the business owners on the one hand, control functions like legal compliance and then your internal audit teams, all have to be privy and and aware of where these, how these risk dashboards, month on month, quarter on quarter, what what is the performance of these funds and are there any kind of red flags. Um, Thirdly, in terms of the the, the scenario analysis, this is interesting because again, I think uh, all of us have kind of evolving our thinking in this space. So what we look at currently are scenario analysis for all our sustainability-focused funds, but it's, it's more focused on temperature, uh, sorry, on carbon price, actually. Um, whereas from a CBI perspective, they've referenced uh, different parts where to transition. So what we hope to do is to now look at potentially aligning uh, all our funds on the TCFD pr- framework. I mean, those of you who have a presence in the UK would know that the FCA expects TCFD reporting of asset managers you know, come 2023. So I think it's, it's the direction of travel. So TCFD allows for you know three scenario analyses, the orderly, disorderly transition, and then a hothouse scenario. So that's really what we are looking to align to. Uh, at a Morgan Stanley level at a group level we already have published our TCFD report however we need to now consider doing it at a divisional level for asset management and that would necessitate looking at it you know product by product. Um, fourthly uh, in terms of the you know the, the, the business model risk now this speaks to uh, you know products and services you know how are you approaching your product suite, Uh, and and to that end, a couple of things, you know, I'm very happy to go into detail, but a couple of things we've done uh, thus far is firstly have an internal framework on how we approach sustainability in terms of our product suite, and intentionally it's not aligned to SFDR, to BaFin, to AMF, because in our view, there would be a whole plethora of these, if I could call it classifications, it's not supposed to be, but you know so we don't really want to peg ourselves to one particular regulatory standard not least we have a global footprint so we thought if we could be intentional in terms of identifying how does how do we as an organization approach this so looking at our spectrum incorporates you know regular funds so article 6 if you could call it then funds that have exclusionary screens Then moving on that spectrum funds that go beyond exclusionary screens to incorporate thematic tilts and then at the far end of the spectrum you have your impact funds or funds that have a sustainable investment objective Um, and then the regulation may choose to dice that however you want to but we have a sense of how we look at it internally and then looking at a workflow internally to make sure that there is an independent review when either an investment team come to us and say, look, I have an existing fund, which is an Article 6. Um, I'm just using those terms because all of us are familiar with it, but we'd like to enhance that process and make it an eight or a nine. Or indeed, if they want to bring a new, brand new product to market, we have a workflow to ensure that you know, there's an independent review, the sustainability team, which uh, I'm part of, our risk colleagues, that we can kick the tires and assess, okay, what exactly is your ambition? You know, what kind of data infrastructure do you have to support it? You know, how do you what kind of levers do you hope to use, whether that be exclusions combined with thematic tilts, best in class, et cetera? Uh, and how do you hope to also report on it uh, once the fund is launched? Because that's an important consideration. Could you actually support that reporting? Um, So these are, I guess, all considerations uh, for us as we look to, you know, incorporate and then enhance our internal procedures. Uh, The final point is disclosure, right? And very simply, how do you avoid greenwashing? Um, And and to that end, really, I think they're intrinsically linked because if you go about it intentionally and then you, you ensure that your disclosures say what you do in practice, that's essentially what it is. Uh, I mean, the road to greenwashing, I think, is paved with good intention. So uh, the, the point is, how do you make sure that you constantly stay date in terms of, you know, there might be instances, and it's not specific to ESG, that where market movements or indeed change of approach may mean that you actually consider your ESG integration in a different way or would want to. And to my mind, that's okay. The regulation does not prohibit you to do that. It's not like a USITS regulation where you have your 5-10-40 rule, Mm. where if you don't follow it, you're not a USITS fund. What SFDR and taxonomy, et cetera, want you to do is to stay intentional, to actually disclose what happens under the tin, And that's really the bar you need to kind of set for yourself and kind of hold yourself to. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's a great answer. I, I think one of the challenges is given, um, you know, given it's virtually impossible to meet all the, the expected standards that will emerge in the future, and yet people don't want to be trapped in um, a, a hindsight issue, like, you, you know, in hindsight you should have done this two years ago and you didn't. So, you know, we've, we, we would expect, I think, that um, the... From a regulatory perspective there's a little bit of a soft touch and you know standards emerge we're seeing Mm -hmm. the IFRS is going to create accounting standards and you know hopefully the the governments are starting to align but I I just noticing on the Slido um, the the question of how do investors navigate the issue of greenwashing um, what are the key metrics indicators that help find um, the right investment or avoid the wrong ones Uh, do you have any view on the, from the um, money market side on you know, how greenwashing, or how do you show that you've done appropriate, um, appropriate due diligence?
3: Well, I think actually echoing a lot of what Sonali's just said is, is, is vital. Um, and you know, in, it, intent versus, uh, uh, intent versus um, outcome is, is an, important, an important thing to look at. When we're looking at um, the, and there's another question there around uh, proprietary scoring uh, of, of it, which I think is I think is is, is linked. It, we are doing proprietary scoring of um, of in our case predominantly financial institutions when we're looking at how we're applying that within money market portfolios. In my case, uh, and that's uh, an important thing, but it is a uh, a nascent uh, and. Uh, embryonic, if you like, uh, process. So we are going to change. It is going to involve. And actually, when you're looking at it from an investor's perspective, um, there is no individual investor view. It changes by region, and it changes by uh, asset class and by client type. And even within that, individual investors within client types have have different views on uh, uh, on the same... What might be viewed objectively, they have very different subjective uh, opinions on Um, I think, though, what we're starting to see is a common sort of nomenclature become required. Mm -hmm. So uh, maybe that is SFDR, and we are seeing very commonly, is your fund SFDR Mm 8? Is it SFDR 9? Is it, sorry, Article 8, Article Mm 9, Article 6? It's something that we're seeing increasingly coming up in conversations. Quite frankly, I think a lot of investors, let alone a lot of asset managers, don't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. But it is becoming, show my age here, a kite mark for, for investors to, to pin a hat on. I'm talking about mostly corporate or institutional investors here. Um, that is, a, a, you know, that common adoption of taxonomy or nomenclature is something that's going to be important and will, I think, uh, uh, going forward, potentially be how, how uh, people look at whether something is um, meets their certain sustainable goals when they're looking at it as a first criteria before they look under the tin and do detailed DDQs. Yeah,
0: Sure, good. And, and Tenny, how does your um, your investor community look at sort of greenwashing? And do you d- does the Fair Initiative have like a role in educating and driving a kind of a standard forward?
1: Yes, um, I think that when it when it comes to greenwashing, as as husband said, it is about the the intent, and so making sure that you are actually with with a lot of these um, the regulations that are at, that are coming um, down the pipe. It is a case of trying to ensure that. They're not getting in, they're not making you just do box ticking for the sake of it and then you can kind of um, budge or, or not show exactly what is happening. But there is that need to try and encourage the clarity and, as I said before, the, the transparency there. Um, so it, and then also when it comes to the, um, the, being able to compare funds as well, I think that it is, again, important to recognise that inevitably, there is going to have to be alignment around certain things so that we can actually make sure that um, the, uh, the, that investors have the information, the data that they actually need. So when it comes to greenwashing, yes, we are going to see, we, we do make sure, we do try to ensure that the information that you're given, you are able to assess it clearly because you understand the intent behind it and it's not, say, uh, marketing or something like that.
0: Good. Okay. So um, we're we're out of time. I think we've pretty much captured all of the questions there. It's left for me to thank um, Andrew, Sonali, and Tenney for their uh, great um, contributions, um, the contributions to the panel. Um, You know, I think what we've heard is that, you know, obviously ESG is um, bearing down on all of us. Um, We're starting to see standards emerge. We're starting, we're at least seeing cooperation. Um, And, you know, as I said at the beginning, intent is um, is, is sort of half the battle. So, the fact that everyone is intending to, you know, move the investment um, society to a level where it's contributing appropriately um, to the climate and the social and the government objectives is, is I think, fantastic. And, um, you know, it's, I'm sure there'll be a, it'll be a choppy few years um, as we sort of st- na- start to navigate that path, but, um, you know, I've no doubt that, uh, that we'll get there. So thank you for your time and thank you to the uh, the panel.
1: Thank you.